0: Hi, my name is Lynn McTaggart. Welcome to my podcast Living the New Science. In these podcasts, I'm covering some extraordinary discoveries by frontier scientists and other new thought leaders and why this changes everything we think about how our world works and also how we should live our lives. Today we're going to continue our talking about the power of language and our thoughts to heal or harm people with health Challenges. And for this, I'm speaking with my dear friend Annette Banyel. For those of you who may not know her, Annette is the founder of the Annette Banyel Method and Neuro Movement, and the author of the best selling books Move Into Life and Kids Beyond Limits. Annette's work is at the forefront of movement sciences, making use of the power of neuroplasticity to provide breakthrough outcomes to athletes, musicians, those suffering from pain and injury, and children with special needs. Annette, her team, and the thousands of practitioners she's trained have healed tens of thousands of conditions deemed incurable through her extraordinary processes. And one of those processes, in my experience, is the way she languages this. So welcome, Annette. It's great to speak with you. The things that I am fascinated by, and I've been talking about a lot, is the languaging around alternative medicine, because a lot of people, you know, even great alternative practitioners, really fantastic pr- practitioners, fall down when it comes to the kind of thoughts and the language that they use and they don't realize that their thoughts are affecting that patient's progress and prognosis as much as anything else they do. So what has fascinated me about you from the very beginning is you never approach a case thinking with essentially an endpoint, a prognosis. Now tell me about why. How can you wow, you
1: know I'm getting shivers all
0: over of
1: all these years, you're the first person who asks me this question and just hits the nail exactly on the head okay. I just love it I mean I'm really I'm just gonna like you know I get emotional, so I'm gonna try and not cry from enthusiasm on your <laughs> <laughs> on <our laughs> webinar anyway um yeah, well I there's a few things so I I just you know when I knew what the topic was going to be a story I mean my own experience a story that I want to tell briefly about my experience encountering the power of thought yeah and then go from there to more theoretical and all that stuff so I was literally a new practitioner I think the woman was either I think she was my second client she was, as a child, in a, in a camp, in a concentration Nazi camp. So she was terribly, terribly traumatized, obviously, and lost family and all that stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: And she came in and she was really, and I was a, a student, you know, kind of like, anyway, she comes in beautifully dressed, coiffed, makeup, the whole thing, which is also it's kind of unusual in Israel, just in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week, and and she tells me briefly her history, but she came in because she had pain, very pain here and there, back, neck, you know, whatever. And I know nothing from nothing except I just started working, graduated, started working with people. So she lies down, <clears throat> and literally big parts of her body are off the table. She's so tight, she's so held. She's so like, you know, kind of molded in anxiety, terror, whatever it is. And I go like, so I I knew, excuse me, I have a hair here. So I, I didn't know what to do. And I looked at her and I thought, I just, and you know, I was just watching, she was on her back. And I was thinking, I thought, oh my God, She is so messed up. I don't think I could help her. And I happened to notice that she held her breath. Now, people, you know, breathe in, breathe out. There's sometimes a pause. And, you know, so I I wasn't sure. But I decided to see what will happen if I change my thought to a positive thought. It just occurred to me. I was curious. So I, knowing her, her, background is, I thought, it takes a huge amount of intelligence to be able to get so messed up,
0: <laughs>
1: which is actually true. It takes a human brain to be able to have all the kind of complex, compl- complex problems we have. So, so she, she, she took a deep breath, but then people breathe in sometimes. So I decided to flip and think the original thought. And when I thought it, she held her breath. I flipped it, breathed in. I did it one more time, and that was all the evidence I ever needed.
0: Wow. So it was only your positive thought, sending a positive thought instead of thinking, oh my God, she's holding her breath, she's so tight, she's holding she's in. She's hopeless. Et cetera,
1: et cetera. She's hopeless.
0: Yeah. I can't she's help. hopeless. Her. She's yeah. hopeless. And this is so fascinating. For me, because part of what I teach all the time with my master classes and intention, et cetera, is particularly if you have someone you're disagreeing with or someone you don't like or someone who you have some judgment about. If you hold a positive intention for for them, not only do you change, Mm -hmm. they change. They change. So here we have in healing, this is so fascinating, the thought of the practitioner completely changes the physiology, the activity, the behavior of the patient. So, so I gonna, have to, can I throw ahead. in something? Mean, I'm going to totally derail you from your plans. No, here.
1: please. <laughs> but, no. you know, so there's this amazing uh, scientist in Rutgers University, uh, Elizabeth Torres, She's a a, 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 a computer scientist, mathematician, and a neuroscientist. And she developed a a whole thing where she uh, puts, and we we are now into this phase of analysis. You put the sensors on the patient or on the client and, and it reads micro movements of the muscles, not the ones we feel. There's those very they call micro movements, anyway, and they represent the activity in the brain and the quality. We'll get to that of the activity in the brain, but now she also puts them on the practitioner. So she analyzes that what's happening with us. It was two, two kids in, in a school school in, in Canada, and. And she analyzes the practitioner, but then she analyzes the correlation. And that's what I'm waiting for. And that is, I think, on a pure
0: science level, what you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. That there is this coordinated dance, essentially, between healer and healy. And what healers don't understand is oftentimes present company accepted is that what they're thinking, what they're saying is going to be absolutely paramount in healing that patient. Now, I like to tell the story of my own journey because I had a a problem with my hips really from birth. And um, eventually I had to go for an operation. But along that journey, I went to all kinds of alternative practitioners because I always believe surgery is the last resort. It has its place. It's great. It was fantastic for me, but it's the last resort. So I went to all these different things. And when I ended up being fascinated by more than anything was their languaging. It was completely undermining everything they were doing, which was otherwise great. And I remember even them making a judgment when I went to somebody just before surgery, just to do a little bit of uh, a microcurrent work. And when she heard I was having surgery, she said, God, that's pretty drastic, isn't it? And by then <laughs> I, I just stopped her and I said, did you just hear what you said? You know, is, what is that supposed to do? But I was fascinated even early on, early prognoses, Somebody said to me probably 20 years ago, you know, this was an osteopath. You know, people I see like you, they're usually a candidate eventually for a hip replacement. And I'm thinking to myself back then, what am I supposed to do with that? And that is the whole issue, the crux, making the diagnosis, making the limitation saying, or saying things like, I might be able to improve things a little bit, but, you know, I can't really promise anything. That's already setting up a limitation with healing. And what I love about your stuff is that you don't do that. So,
1: okay, so- I've
0: got a kid with, but you, I've heard so many stories you've told me about kids who are brought in, who have cerebral palsy or something like that. They've, their parents have been told, this is a hopeless case. Now you don't do that, and you don't even you even talk to the parents about a kind of languaging. That I train the, the parents into
1: their languaging.
0: Yeah. So okay. Tell us about that,
1: I, I will tell. I'll tell about that, and and I'm going to say one very short thing. At a certain mm-hmm. point, I realized that when I'm with you, we are one brain in two heads. A parent and a child, <clears throat> they're one brain even when they're apart. But when they're with a child, one brain. Now, one brain is more mature. One brain is more skillful. One brain, you know, so it becomes the leader that mm-hmm. kind of gets. So when somebody goes to a therapist or to a healer or something like that, we relegate that We become like a child, not child ditch. But we have to trust them. We have to give give ourselves to their power. You know, the the image that I use when I train my people is the mama dolphin and the baby dolphin. (laughs) So if you look at pictures, the mama dolphin swims up here and the baby is a little, it's behind and a little below. And what's happening is that she creates a current and the baby dolphin on their own can't swim. But with the current, they can swim three months before they get independent. If they stop, if there isn't an adult moving with a, with a baby, they will sink and they will die. So that's the, that is kind of drastic, but that's what I say. That's how I, I feel myself. And I, when I train people, you are the mama dolphin. So it requires a we're, We'll go into the details of what goes into it. So when I get a child and it can be autism or or genetic or basically a child that's not developing the way people expect it to develop. Sometimes it's obvious what's going on. Sometimes it's not obvious. I don't interact with the diagnosis. I interact with a child Mm. and I interact with what I get. I see, I feel with a child. Now, what gives me the sense that I will never say never is partly because I'm also trained as a scientist. You know, I have background in, in math, in statistics, in, in of course the, the neuroscience came later, but I'm not a neuroscientist, I'm not, I don't have a degree, but of course I've been in that field for a long time. and And I know how much I don't know. I don't know what I don't know, but I know how much I don't know. And as a scientist, I cannot say something is not possible. My father, who is a scientist, said the the only thing, because I told him that when never mind the whole story, because otherwise I'll eat up all the time. And you know, and he said to me, the only thing in science that we consider is impossible, it's when it is it is against the laws of thermodynamics. That's your quantum physics. So if it's against the laws of thermodynamics, in science, we consider it impossible. What you do is we, well within the bounds
0: of thermodynamics. That was it. <laughs> that, he, he gave you the seal of approval. But you know, you've know, you talked about so many things, Annette, that are so yes. key here. And one is, there's a lot of science showing this whole idea of hypermind, which is what you talked about, or um, what I found, there's a lot of studies in intention showing that a more organized brain, a more organized mind can order the other. Oh yeah. So if you have two, just as you said, the mother dolphin, the baby dolphin, the therapist being the one with the more coherent thoughts about some something, some element of anatomy or whatever, can essentially help to order the lesser organized person. I say organized because uh, physicists use a term called coherence, which gets really misused a lot. It is in physics, it means when quantum particles um, start essentially behaving like one giant quantum particle. Um, they, like a laser, is coherent light. Those, all of those individual little photons act like one giant photon, and it hugely magnifies the light. So that's what we can do. We also find people in a group, which is why power of eight groups work. Um, they become like one big hypermind, one single mind. So that is really important. And just the other thing you said that was so amazing and important is we can't know. How can we know the course of an illness? You know, nobody, no learned doctor can say with any certainty, Who is going to live or who is going to die? Who is going to respond to the challenge of illness and who isn't? And also I would go even one stage further is we can never say something is impossible. I see the impossible all the time. I see people getting up out of their wheelchairs from power of eight groups, 10 minutes and they're healed. You know, I see people with all kinds of intractable things that get healed instantly in 10 minutes. So so we can never say that. And also the new science is growing so fast and the knowledge we have about who we are and how we work is changing so much that it's really difficult to say with certainty, you oh, know, how things is- work and, you know, most of our understandings of the body are way back in very a very old science
1: okay you know uh, this, you know you're talking you also in me so first of all my my I mean I have my my education psychology all that stuff but uh, but my great teacher was dr. Feldenkrais, right and he, from him I moved up he was a, 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 a physicist he was a, a quantum mechanics, he, he, he studied, got his PG with, PhD with Julio Curie, right? I mean, and he was also an engineer and he was a black belt in judo and, you know, on and on and on. So, and he talked, he talked about the brain. He took the model quantum physics to explain and understand, to understand and explain how the brain works. So when you said you know, instantly in 10 minutes, somebody can get up or something like that. I wrote down instantly over time. You ask me, how do I keep hope? How do I, I don't even keep hope, it's just, it, it just there, right? It just does itself, but but how do I have it? How do I generate it? And I generate it because when I work, for example, with a child, the first child I worked with over, over 20 years, over, it ended up being over 20 years, was diagnosed as global brain damage, put her in institution, she will never ever anything, right? And I started working with her and she had, she was extremely limited. So the diagnosis matched the picture as she, but as she presented herself. But when I worked, there were always changes. There was always a response by the system. There was always a response by the brain. I knew that there's real good brain there that had later on, they found out what it was. You know, she's, she's, she's missing a third of her cerebellum. It's called cerebellar hypoplasia. And it, can, it, it has a big range of, you know, depends, but hers was very severe. And, and she ended up walking, talking. She has two master's degrees. She's married and she has a small business. But if I had to do it on the first time, it would never have happened. So one of the things, and that kind of brings it to language, I'm, I'm kind of going to overlap two things here and hopefully it makes sense. So, so the brain language, speech and language is a, the most complex function in our body. So when we think about, oh, you know, physical or healthy, we think running or jumping, it's big deal, but nothing compared to speech in terms of complexity and then speech is directly tends to be associated to thought and, and thought is a form of movement. So if I move my arm, I start, I stop, the movement is gone. It's like music. You play the note, it's there and then it's gone. But when it comes to quote unquote physical, I mean, thinking is also physical, but when it comes to 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 body movement that we can see, feel, sense, uh, you know, so on, it feels real. When it comes to thinking, it doesn't feel real because it doesn't have that concrete translation, experiential translation. So you have the job, you've taken upon yourself the job of getting people to start realizing that thought is real and it has real impact, just like if I'm gonna do that, I'll create a sound, right? it has real impact how i mean animals communicate but to the best of our knowledge there is not another species that gets to do what we do <clears throat> with language poetry i mean everything very 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 amazing any function when a, b- a baby is born they make sound there is no speech there is no language communication starts happening pretty quickly if people know to how to see it infants communicate but most people don't don't know how to see it or read it but to speak it's a ve- it's a gradual very specific process of and I'm introducing the word differentiation. Mm-hmm. The brain does not have the connections, and it's through experience that there is all this differentiation. And, and differentiation that means shooting new connections between different nerve cells and different parts of the brain, and so on. That by itself does not do it. There needs to be integration. So without differentiation, I'll talk about with, about the healers and differentiation in a minute. Differentiation, from my point of view, is an infinite, potentially infinite process as long as we're alive. So Elizabeth, everybody knows she, I wrote about her in my book, Elizabeth couldn't walk with what she had to work with. What my work did is gradually help her brain to, you know, to wake up, <laughs> excuse me, and, figure start differentiating and when it does that she could start doing something that she couldn't do before then she could do something else that she couldn't do before and very often in my work the progression is is looks like unrelated to the reason why they came to me but if they stay long enough whatever that is I'm so sorry then Eventually people figure out how to do it. I say a dog when they grow, they bark, a dog will bark. A human being when they grow, will speak, will walk, will do the human things. And thinking is subject to the same process.
0: Hmm. And this
1: is more or less differentiated. And, And it's highly, highly connected to our emotional system to our, it's, it, and very often we're not aware of it. So, with this story, I started this call today. I became aware of what I was doing, mm-hmm. what I was feeling, my hopelessness, my sense that it's not possible, and that I projected it onto her. Mm-hmm. You see, because today, I'll give you an example of differentiation. I work, actually, somebody you know, but it doesn't matter, that had an accident and they had to reconnect the nerves and all that stuff, you know, the arm and the head. And most of the function is back, but some sensation is still missing. I don't know if my work with that person can help. So I don't say, oh, it's not the hours that I say. We're going to work on it. I don't know what's going to happen. Are you open to explore? You see, and then I probably told a story or two of times that it succeeded because that's what I hook into. It can work, it can regenerate. But if I don't want to make it, if I want to be real and authentic and I don't want to give false hope, so to speak. You know, parents say to ask me, will my child walk when they can't even roll or sit up by themselves yet? And I say, I realized early on, I said to them, if I have to answer your question now, whether your child is going to walk or not, I will have no idea what to do with your child. Mm -hmm. I have to work with your child where they're at right now and open the, the brain, wake up the brain, get it to do all that it does. And of course, it's all connected to the rest of the body and the metabolism and all that stuff. So, so, and look at the person is alive. I mean, for me, the fact that I'm here with you, that we are alive, that we move, that all this, it's all a miracle, Mm -hmm. you know, it's huge already. So let's just Mm -hmm. add a little bit and make it a little huger.
0: Yes, and you know, what you talked about, um, first of all, the idea of your positivity affecting that woman who was the Holocaust survivor. You know, one thing we never realize is that thoughts Aside from us creating a hyperbrain, we also have thought, thoughts I've been demonstrating are, are, are trespassers, you know, the scientific studies that I've done, the intention experiments, um, the work with the power Big. Of... being- Oh,
1: I can't hear you, Lynn, you, I can't or hear you. Can you, you hear now? Oh, you're back, you're yeah. back. Okay. And I didn't well, understand what you mean by trespassers. I can lost- Well, it.
0: our thoughts can affect other people and things. And the evidence shows there's overwhelming evidence that our thoughts can affect other people, other things. And so this brings us back to practitioners. And if practitioners don't realize that, then they are in trouble. But what you're saying is really interesting because it's all about avoiding a prognosis. In fact, avoiding a diagnosis um because you know i will say one thing in my experience there isn't anything there isn't such thing as false hope there's only hope now you don't have to present it but you do you may not think you do but by just saying i'm going to work with this child now you're making an you are essentially saying let's be present to what is and see where we go from yeah. there that's hope that's hope because most of the time a person a parent of that kind of child is being told, there's not much we can do, learn to live with it, you know, change your house, all of that kind of stuff. They're not giving them any sense there is a possibility. But the other thing that you're talking about that is so fascinating and important for therapists of all varieties and patients of all varieties is the extraordinary potential of the brain and the mind. And I say them both as two distinct things because the work I do demonstrates that mind isn't locked up here. Mind is out there, out there in the field and that the brain essentially is tapping into it. So what you're really talking about all the time is this infinite ability to change. And we see it with your work and the extraordinary young kids that you, to walk. You get to move the, the, as I say, the hopeless cases that become hope and become fulfilled. Um, and you know, we're discovering all the time. There was, we just did a story for our magazine, what doctors don't tell you about an organization that takes stroke uh, victims. And the usual thing is to not move the affected part of the body to just give up on it and what they're realizing this organization in Toronto as you have long realized is with brain plasticity those brain connections can form new connections and even if this part is not moving you can get new connections and with those connections you can create movement and you know they have talked about you know a guy who had a stroke who was a pianist and a concert pianist he's back playing you know, yeah. this is part of oh, yeah. like, I mean, the body. Is so you've probably seen lots of stuff like that.
1: Well, the possibilities are enormous. Of course, we uh, we ha- somebody made a documentary about our work, and uh, and half of it is on a child, and half of it is on a gorgeous twenty seven year old a-, a young woman that had a devastating stroke. She finished three months of rehab, and it was actually Geobaldi Taylor that referred her to us. And, and she can't, I mean, she, you know, the arm, right arm paralysis, she was aphasic, this was the left side of the brain and, you know, could walk, but with a cane and stiff and depressed for good reason, you know, and uh, she's married, she had a baby, you know, there's some limitations. If we got her right away, I think it would have been a different picture, but the changes and she became a practitioner. She took the training. I mean, and the language came back over time and so on. So absolutely. But I want to point out something that as you talked, I realized, you know, I'm the queen of differentiation and distinctions because that's what I work with. <laughs> By the way, it's important to understand when we talk about the brain and so much of your work kind of like can be maybe felt in an a, absorbed or easier, the brain is not a mechanical system. It's an information system. Information system, you can't hold it, you can't smell it, you know, it doesn't have shape, it has effects, it it affects us. But, and the thing about it is, what's the source of information? And the source of information, we generate the information. So we get this, of course, stimulations, without it, nothing happens, but, it's what we do with it. And basically over time, I understood that what about what I do works is that I help the person I work with perceive differences. and the moment that it is in neuroscience is called the not stimulus, but a something to noise ratio. Um, I'll remember in a so minute.
0: Signal to noise ratio. Signal
1: to noise ratio. Right. Signal to noise ratio. I, I, I just talk about it, but perception of differences and the nine essentials I talk about, each of them drive, facilitate for the brain to perceive differences. You have somebody who had a stroke or you have a healthy person that wants to run better and mm-hmm. they run every day an hour and an hour and a half and they lift weights, but they don't run better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, how come they're not having a progression? How come all this time does not make them better? It keeps them in good shape and so on. It's because they do it in a way that there's no new information in their brain. So so when we come back to how you talk, how you use language, then then we talk about perceiving differences. And one of the mistakes that that parents or somebody who has... uh, whatever limitation is we focus on the outcome we want to have. So if we take a child that has cerebral palsy or a child on the autism spectrum that doesn't look in the eyes and doesn't talk, and the parent brings them because they want them to look in the eye and talk or they want them to walk and they get, you know, a series of 10 sessions, we call it an intensive over five days. And the child is not walking or not talking and looking in the eyes yet. And because they've been trained to focus on that, they miss everything else that's happening. And the, the hope, the possibilities live in the process, they don't live in the outcome. So when it's really embodied by the practitioner that it's the process and it's the quality of the process. I could work with Elizabeth and be delighted and he- happy and, and gratified. And actually, she was my training. It's because they kept, the parents kept bringing her back with small changes. They're never small because it's a quantum system. A quantum system, that, you know, when it's a mechanical system, you'll have one kilogram or pound, or you have a hundred kilograms and pound. One is smaller or less, and one is bigger or more. But if a child never focus their eyes, and, or never something, and you do something with them, and in response, they do it, that's a perfect brain. At that moment, the brain self organized, that's what we're talking upgraded itself and then it can do things it couldn't do before yeah, and i'm I'm going gonna, gonna to say something because of covid you know because of pandemic we we today we open our practice again it's so amazing our center in san rafael yeah, it's amazing but but the, we couldn't do it and i realized it's going to be a long time the kids are growing the adults are, you know, but especially the children, their brain is forming. And if it's not getting the input it needs, doesn't generate the differentiation integration it needs. That's what the, that's the platform from which they will be, you know, so the trajectory of growth gets, you know, lower and lower. So I thought, let's do it online but i can't tell the parents to be a practitioner it takes you know a year over a year to become sure, sure. a basic practitioner so i can't just tell them to do it but then i thought because of everything you and i already spoke about if i get the parents brain to operate at a higher level
0: mm-hmm.
1: and use the nine essentials in their daily interactions with children mm. Wonder, I wondered what will happen with a child. So we took a week. We didn't charge. We emailed to our people. We had over 250 families wanting it. We could take 21. Each family got four sessions. We called it a mini intensive. They got four sessions. After the, second se- after the first session, in the second session, a child spontaneously walked up the stairs and downstairs, never did it before. Nobody practiced it. So the real deal that I think kind of like the big enveloping sphere of this whole thing is if we have a way, a healer in their specialty, in their track, in their language. So I, I say movement is the language of the brain. I use movement to talk to the brain, right? But I also use language, language. Somebody else might, you know, different methods, different techniques. It, it doesn't matter. When we do it in a way that drives the brain to upgrade itself,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: the person will do better yes and will do things we could never have even asked for that's why I can't tell a parent your child will never I can't tell a parent I don't know what to do and the one time in my career it was a young man that had a bed and I was a young practitioner and I really was I, I, I didn't feel like I figured out how to connect to him, you know, to be able to drive. And I said to her, to the mother, it's very hard. The hardest thing is to send the client away and say, I can't help. But I said to her, I can't, but I have been the solution to many children and people that were told there's no solution. I kind of am pretty sure there's a person in this universe that can be the solution to your child.
0: You see, I didn't say it's impossible.
1: You Mm -hmm. know,
0: it's the Mm -hmm. other way around. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, even if you can't help, you said a couple of things that are really, really important. Number one, you were teaching the parents about languaging and also observing differentiation. And by the way, one of Annette's, my favorite stories of differentiation with a child who couldn't move her legs were like one big a mermaid's fin was to write on one thing one and thing two you know from dr zeus i love that and that started the child moving because she suddenly had the idea of these are two different independent things but what you were saying about parents And this could be about the family, too, of a patient, about the other people in the, of course, the practitioner itself is to teach them about languaging and thought about it, that there is never no hope, you know, as long as you're out, you know, and even we don't know what happens after the grave. You know, there lots of people who come back after near death experiences, talk about it being an extraordinary experience. Anita Morjani, a good friend of mine who had that big long near death experience, came back saying, I'm never gonna be frightened of death again, and there were amazing new possibilities. So we don't even have to fear that. But the point is, it's all about the language. It's all about the refusal to characterize that illness, to limit that illness, to limit that person. And I imagine that the family needs, in many cases, I can just see practitioners, you know, I have this course called Become a Better Healer with the Power of Eight that I'm teaching starting next next Thursday. Um, And it's aimed at practitioners, and it's aimed at the thoughts and languaging. Because as I said early on, I find you an amazing exception in that, because even these wonderful practitioners, I just wanna die for them because they are undermining all of their great work if they don't use their thought, if they don't use their language. And they're also um, limiting what they can do. They could do so much more with their language, with their thoughts getting into that space of complete and infinite possibility. So I think that that, I love the idea that when you taught the parents, the children improved because you were, you were creating a healing environment. And that's another thing we try to do with power of eight groups. In many cases, they are crucibles for opportunity, you know, where there is suddenly this warming, um, loving container for people saying, yes, you can be healed. Yes, this is all possible and taking people at their lowest and bringing them to infinite possibility. And that is the ultimate, I think, with practitioners is understanding that essentially this is no matter how good they are, this is all out of their hands. So of course, You might as well be a cheerleader for possibility because everyone has the potential of being healed. And you yourself have probably seen more so-called miracles than, you know, probably as many as I have recently, but you've through your whole long, wonderful career. So I want to start asking, letting some of the people who are on this call ask us some questions. We've got, um, let's see, um, Right. How, how to heal myself to make my, well, here's a question for me from Kit. Kit said, your intention statements include stating a diagnosis. Is this something you're considering excluding from your statements or studying? No, because what the problem with any diagnosis is the thinking about it being terminal or self-limiting. What we usually do with our intention statement is talk about symptoms. If we do talk about something like cancer, we're naming it, but we're also announcing to the world that we expect fully that this will be healed. So the problem with the diagnosis isn't the diagnosis. The problem with the diagnosis is the belief that goes with it, that certain things are uh, curable and certain things are not. So what we do with intentions is make them very specific. And that can include what someone has said that the person has. What the usual thing with most practitioners does not include is the assumption, the certainty of healing. And that's the sort of thing I try to teach. Can I, may I say something about that? Sure, go ahead, please. Yeah, so when I started working
1: with people my background was clinical psychology, a psychotherapist. I mean, I wasn't trained as a doctor or as a physical therapist. And, and people started coming to me. And, and I worked initially more with adults, but then also when the children came. And people would give me the diagnosis. And I found that just hearing the name constricted me. It's, yeah. It was scary. So I, I very quickly did something intentional That is kind of your lines. I think yours is better because it's more, in a way, differentiated. (laughs) But what I I did with it is I said, okay, go to your doctor and ask the doctor, what are the things that I should not be doing with you or should not be doing with your child? So there are certain conditions you don't want to put the person upside down. Or there are certain conditions, you know, whatever is not safe. And they would do that. And then I trained myself to forget what their diagnosis was. I literally forgot it because, and I, you know, and then the prognosis part, because then I interacted with a person and with reality and, and I could perceive because we perceive mostly what we anticipate the brain works that way. We limit our perception. So if I if I'm looking for something and remember that it was blue, but it happens to be white, I might not find it in, even though it's in front of me because I'm scanning for blue. So yeah. you know we are scanning for death. It's terminal. It's over. We are scanning for pain, right? So 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 that that was you know, and I felt it, and I, and so I worked with reality, and I was open to such small changes, quote unquote and really delight in them and say, Oh, this is good. If there wasn't that change, I shifted what I did because I needed to connect with that brain and get it going or that person. Prognosis, I had a spontaneous reaction that worked for me for many years perfectly. So the parent comes, they're trained to believe that the, they're terrified into believing the prognosis, which creates a depression. awful what it does. And, and then I said, says who? Says who? A doctor said that. The nurse said that. The grandparents said that. So it Says who? I don't have to buy into it. I don't have a prognosis. I don't provide prognosis. I provide a process. Mm-hmm. And that completely freed me up. And I'm not a doctor. I'm not a physical therapist. I don't do medical intervention. So I, had, I didn't have to deal with it. I just had to be safe. So I had the doctors tell me what I can't do in terms of, you know,
0: danger. Yeah. And but what you said is so important because that's what we're really talking about. We're talking about the prognosis. You know, even if somebody says, you know, they may have to know something about what's happening to them. You know, even if it's naming, well, you have seizures, you know, and they they recognize that. Big time. No, I don't deny anything. Yeah, you don't don't have to deny anything. anything. But the problem with a diagnosis, usually, this is what we're trying to get across, is not that languaging. It's the expectation or lack of. It is the course of the illness that usually comes with the diagnosis. And doctors have been trained to make clear to their patients, because they believe and they've been told, well, don't, you know, don't let them have any kind of false hope. And as we've been talking about, there is only hope. There is <laughs> only hope. And you know, I never thought of that. I never yeah. thought of that distinction. I love it. I love it. Yeah, so, because yeah, there isn't, you know, there's no, well, you know, you see, hope. yeah, you see people who were not supposed to move every single day of your life you know now and and it's true for daily life it's true for uh, baking a a birthday cake for somebody i'm not good at that Mm. says who you know i know i'm not good at how many times have people tried to do something they couldn't do before and find that they can do it you know i'm thinking about zip lining soon (laughs) (laughs) I'm much was more courageous than I am. I I'm not, I'm not <laughs> uh, and by the way, somebody asked if did not I try healing with a gnat prior to my surgery, and yes, the answer was yes. yes. Yeah. I'm probably one of my whole family is is got some sort of hip dysplasia, and we did try a lot of things, but thanks anyway. But I got so much more balanced with a gnat, I have to say. And I want to
1: also say something. You know, you had a condition that required intervention, a surgical intervention. It's it's perfectly fine. But everything you did in terms of learning how to use your body and and connecting and mapping, you know, we literally map the body to the brain and the brain to the body. I, I, I believe that that's why you could heal so fast and get totally functional in no time. Because you already had the underlying skill capacities. And now you had the, the joint, the literal joint that could do it.
0: Uh, yeah. And I have some great news to tell you, which is my 24-year-old daughter and I did a hit class to, to, together, H-I-I-T. And she was puffed and I was not. <laughs> <laughs> so I know. And I will we'll never let her forget it. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, so now somebody asked a question about um, here. This is a good one for you. Um, let's see. Uh, what about people who have mental disability, which affects their body movement and language? Uh, except for example, damage by toxins for something like that. When people have mental disabilities, I'm sure you've, you've worked with many of those too.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I, I, I don't really separate the two because I see how I've worked with the infants as young as five days and you know, in a few weeks and a few months. And I see the relationship between the development of uh, motor control and the development of thinking. They're, they they, merge, uh, they emerge, they emerge together, they can't be then as they're formed, we can think of them separate uh, If somebody has mental issues or cognitive issues, because mental for me could be also psychological, emotional, so I'm not sure what they're talking. But if I'm talking about cognitive and somebody has toxins or lack of certain supplements, that has to be taken care of, a the process. But um, we work with that all the time. I mean, we work with people learning to differentiate their thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so important, like with the parents, one of the things Mm -hmm. when we do it online, their thinking completely changes and we guide them and they start seeing things in their child. A number of them have said, I thought I knew my child, you know, after two or three half hours, it's kind of like I'm seeing a whole new child and their ideas of what their child is doing and how to go about. So the thinking has to go along with everything else. And, you know, I know for myself, I've done also a huge amount of work on myself. I never stop actually. So, and it's always my thinking that and the movement, the, everything, of course, but the thinking just expands. And the idea that as we get older, the thinking is gonna shrink, it will. Unless we do a proactive process of again the differentiation and coming back to language into first of all, I want to recommend to everyone to take your course. Mm-hmm. Just talking to you here for I don't know almost an hour. I you organize in the way you do it. I mean, learning. I'm learning from you as I'm talking, and I'm getting inspired. So. Mm-hmm. I, and my own people, if they're, because, you know, if they're on, take Lynn's course. I mean, Lynn is, a, is, is amazing. <laughs> and, and everything she provides is awesome. So that's, and she, she didn't ask me to, pl- to, to, to plug the course. <laughs> I just want to make sure that is in
0: there. Uh, anyway, okay. so that's, that's it. Well, and, you know, here's something that was really interesting. Someone asked me not long ago in an interview I was doing, what was one of my best characteristics in my own view? And I had to laugh about this and that because I remember when my mother died in 1996, it was, um, I was going through her old papers. Our family were going through her old papers and everything. And I came across my letters home from college, right? And no. I had been at Northwestern at the time. I was writing home. I was trying to... Uh, convinced my parents of the soundness of their investment in sending me to college, I think. And I wrote in there one day, today I will learn astronomy. And I killed myself laughing because I, and I felt sad at the same time because I knew my mother would have totally understood what I was trying to say, which was I'm going to learn this really easy and quickly and like in a day or two. And, you know, I had a ridiculous, almost unrealistic audacity. And I started thinking about that. And, you know, that uh, I've tried to course correct that a little bit, but not lose the whole, whole <laughs> thing. And I had a laugh about that. And I thought to myself recently, that's the attitude to have as a patient. You have to be audacious. You have to say, there is an answer here. And I know in my own case, That really helped me through what was about three years or so of struggle with with my hips when they finally gave out. Um, I just always knew there was going to be an answer. And I never for one moment doubted that, even by the end when I was walking with crutches, I just knew there'd be an answer. And I really feel so strongly about this, that that is one of the languaging aspects that the parent, the child, the patient, if it's an adult patient, must hold fast to, as well as the practitioner, that there will always be an answer. So we just have a few minutes for a few more questions. So somebody, Katerina said, What if the higher ordered brain belongs to the daughter, not the mother? I have a mother with anxiety and other syndromes that were never addressed at the right time. She's old now and a problematic person to deal with. How do I channel my healing toward her according to this modality? How do I influence her brain?
1: Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. The the, The same way you influence any brain. You know, it doesn't matter. So... A, a, a group of adults sits in a room and there's maybe some tension or something and somebody comes in that is really upgraded. I, I use literally the energy can upgrade its level of order, its ability to basically, okay, so I'm going to say that. The job of the brain is to put order in the disorder and make sense out of the nonsense in a very simple way. The capacity, the cap- not the potential capacity, but the capacity, At any given of the brain to do that can vary enormously. And we all fluctuate, like when we get tired or we get anxious, or some, it tends to go down. So if we have to solve a problem, we're not going to think as well, right? And Mm -hmm. then it, 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 it can go up. But how up can it go? It tends to just fluctuate within a certain range. So what Lynn is talking about, and <clears throat> your course I'm sure will help, is help give access to greater lots. I, I read what your course is offering. So in my you know, uni <laughs> vision, I look to see, is there going to be differentiation there? And there's going to be lots of differentiation. And people in a context, in a purpose. So people are going to be able to utilize themselves in a higher order when you do that when you're around your mother and you're able to be in that usually when that happens you get more peaceful you get more creative spontaneously you don't have to try to be peaceful you are more peaceful you are more creative you are more loving you have less expectations of her maybe you you live leave behind at least for a moment the the you know the the aggravation and the the difficulties that were in there in the past, obviously. She will do amazing. I mean, I've worked with people that were unconscious and in an unconscious state and they had agitation and they were, you know, in a hospital and in an unconscious state, they calm down. That's how powerful that is. The tone of voice, the vibration of voice can agitate a room of a thousand people or can calm down a room of a thousand people. You know, so you can absolutely, who you are, and if I can plug here a little bit, it's like my nine essentials, you know, slowing down, doing variations, uh, having flexible goals, uh, uh, moving with attention to what you feel. So when you approach your mom, feel yourself as you move towards her and move in a way that feels nice, it'll impact her you know so so yes absolutely go for it it'll be
0: wonderful for you not just for your mother Mm, absolutely and i would also just say as just a second what you've said and that which is think of your thoughts as trespassers think Mm. think of them as you know you're broadcasting 24 7 essentially. You don't realize it, but you are. And if you are focusing on the anxiety and the negativity and she didn't get the right care at the right time and all of that kind of stuff around there, that's what you're projecting. That's what she's feeling and it reinforces it. So you change everything you're thinking about her and notice, as Annette's saying, that tiny differentiation. One day where she's not quite so anxious or whatever. She's not so negative. And just really focus on that and embrace it and celebrate it. Just think of yourself as you are her cheerleader for possibility. And I just feel that anyone who is a carer, anyone who is a carer also, also is that not just the practitioner. And, you know, Annette, you, somebody's asking, Carol says, do you see dramatic differences on the outcome of your work with adults compared to children because of conditioning? In other words, do adults react less quickly?
1: Yeah, I well, yes and no. So the, the adult brain is, of course, formed a lot more and we have habits and we need habits and we've, we have history and so on. So in that respect, it's easier and, and children are supposed to change faster than adults because they have to arrive at adulthood. But given within that context, adults change just as fast as children. They're they're not a, 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 a blank slate, but within the context, the changes are so fast, are so dramatic. Again, very important to know, there's the goal where we want to get to. If you ask me that the adult can get to the goal directly necessary. Sometimes it happens within, a, within you know, one session. I worked with this one guy, brilliant scientist, had every, twice or three times a year, really bad spasm of the, the back couldn't move, you know, that kind of stuff, I had to crawl to the bathroom. And he came to me when he just started and I gave him three sessions and he never had it again. You know, so he's, he was able to somehow take it and run with it and it was amazing. But yes, the answer is yes. Again, I'm going to say uh, just be connected to your own processes. You, You do whatever ways you do to help yourself in whatever dimension and celebrate. That's one of my essentials, enthusiasm. Internally celebrate every change. Be your own cheerleader.
0: This is Lynn McTaggart, helping you to live the new science. Keep listening and I'll continue to give you information and tips each time about how to incorporate this new information into your life. And if you'd like to dive deeply with me into the power of intention to heal your past and design your future, why not welcome in the new year by joining me and a small select group of like-minded people for a rare mix of life-changing, transformational teaching and joyous relaxation in a blissful oceanfront setting in Costa Rica. Clear out the old and welcome in the new year and a life-changing future. To find out more about this retreat, visit globalj, G-L-O-B-A-L-J.org, forward slash Lynn hyphen three, and that's Lynn with two N's and an E, so it's Lynn hyphen three, or check it out under my website, lynnmctaggart.com, under events, and then retreats.